Hello, I'm Peter Goodwin and welcome to Audio News from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We're continuing our look back at recent developments in global health issues in this special series of programmes, Audio News Review. In this episode, we have worrying news about the treatment of hepatitis B virus in patients co-infected with HIV and a study that promises to reduce mother-to-child transmission of HIV via breastfeeding. But first, pleasing news about the treatment of herpes in patients who also have HIV. A study in the New England Journal of Medicine has shown that treating herpes simplex infection in patients who also have HIV can reduce the activity of the AIDS virus. A team from Montpellier, London and the Centre Muras in Burkina Faso has investigated the effect of three months' treatment with the anti-herpes agent Valacyclovir on women co-infected with HIV and HSV2. Philippe Mayo gave me the details. We already know that the virus for herpes, HSV2, can enhance acquisition of HIV. A number of epidemiological studies have shown that, that people who have acquired HSV are much more at risk of acquiring HIV, not only because of different behaviours, but also because of the biological interactions between the two viruses. What is less known is whether HSV2 enhances transmission of HIV from infected individuals to their partners. So a number of trials around the world trying to demonstrate that. Now, there are basically two trials, one of which is published right now in the New England Journal, but could you tell me about these two trials, please? Our study in Burkina Faso in West Africa was a set of two trials. The first trial was providing suppressive treatment of herpes to infected women with HSV2 and HIV. And part of these women did not require to have heart or the treatment for HIV. This is trial A, we call it. And part of these women actually were taking already heart. And this is trial B. So the most symptomatic women then received trial number B. And uh, what were the results there? That's already been published, hasn't it? That study was indeed published last year in the journal AIDS. And this was a study in 60 women showing the impact of valacyclovir at uh, 1,000 milligram daily over three months in women taking heart already. And this is a placebo-controlled trial, so half of the women received uh, valacyclovir, half received placebo. And the, the idea, the hypothesis behind this was that whilst women are properly suppressed with heart treatment, i.e., most women would have undetectable plasma viral load, we were interested in finding out whether there is still genital shedding of HIV and whether this is linked to HSV, presence of HSV or replication of HSV and whether treatment can further reduce both the HSV and HIV shedding. Now in a nutshell you found that treatment for HSV did help in that early trial. Overall there was so much good suppression of 85% of women had undetectable plasma viral load therefore the great majority of women did not have presence of genital HIV. However, in the subgroup of women who at the entry to the study did have still genital HIV present, detectable, then treatment further reduced genital HIV. So it's in the subgroup, which was an a priori decided analysis we conducted, there was a further reduction of genital HIV. Could I then get you to tell me about trial A, the one that's now being published? You've got quite an interesting result here. 
Right, this was a study conducted among 136 women in Burkina Faso were duly infected with HIV and HSV2, but none of them required antiretroviral therapy according to WHO and local standards. So they all had uh, a fairly high CD4 counts, for example, and no clinical manifestation of HIV. Providing valacyclovir 1,000 mg daily for three months managed to decrease the frequency of detection of HIV in the genital tract and the quantity of the virus in the genital tract, as well as reducing by half a log the plasma viral loads of HIV. So what does that mean then? Well, this is a trial that is a proof-of-concept trial. It's trying to explain previous hypothesis that uh, HSV management may be a tool for prevention of HIV transmission. By decreasing the amount and frequency of genital HIV, we are on the way to reducing possible transmission of HIV, although that particular study is being conducted right now in many settings in Africa and Latin America and India and, and the US. So the final demonstration on the impact of transmission still needs to be obtained, but this is a very important explanatory trial on how that might happen. The impact on the plasma viral load was something we knew could happen, but we did not anticipate it would be that strong. And in fact, it was increasing month after month or every two weeks as we measured uh, plasma viral load, which means this may have direct clinical benefit for HIV-infected patients. In the absence of heart, and because we know that antiviral compounds for HSV have no direct impact on HIV itself, then this is an interesting result that these patients waiting for being put on, on heart can actually progress less fast. And so it needs to be verified by the impact on CD4 count, for example, whether this is translating these virological results into real immunological or clinical benefits. But I think this is the next phase of the research. There really seems to be a reduction of the rate of progression of the HIV thanks to the HSV treatment, are you saying? Well, we have proven the impact on the virus. We need to prove, you know, by extending the study and, and, and looking perhaps two years down the line with continuous treatments that it has impact on CD4 counts and also on, on rate of progression to heart. Now, we're in the teeth of a, an epidemic worldwide of HIV, so if you were to advise doctors, should they use antivirals? And by the way, is it just the one that you used or would all of the antivirals work? We use valacyclovir primarily because it was a convenient compound in terms of adherence. One can take just a tablet twice daily, whereas other compounds such as acyclovir, which is more widely used and available and, and much cheaper as well, would use at least two tablets twice daily. So in our proof-of-concept trial, it was important to maximize adherence. But we are getting results of other trials using acyclovir that show very similar results in South Africa, for example. Results will be presented in the upcoming conference on retroviruses in, in Los Angeles at the end of this month. So I think it's the, the compounds are quite equivalent. It's a question of uh, patient choice and doctor's choice and cost. And do you recommend doctors to use them then, even though the evidence is not all in? WHO has been very interested by those results and convened two separate meetings last year, one reviewing the management of STI patients and one reviewing the management of HIV patients. In the management of, of HIV patients, the results of the Burkina trial 
were considered and it is now going to be recommended, although with a lower degree of uh, evidence, it requires further trials, that HIV-infected patients should be offered HSV suppressive treatment. First of all, they should be educated about HSV. And the first option would be, well, if they experience ulcerations, they should be treated with the short course treatment called episodic treatment. But if they experience frequent recurrences, it would be very worthwhile for themselves and perhaps for transmission reasons, as we, we found out, that they should be put on suppressive treatment. And of course, there are two scenarios. It's the patients, men or women, who are waiting to be on heart, who do, do not require to be on antiretrovirals right away. What do you offer them? Well, there are already prophylactic treatment we offer for bacterial infections such as cotrimoxazole. An additional treatment could well be providing a cyclovir. That was Philip Mayo talking to me at his office in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, from the big retrovirus conference in California, Dan Keller has got more news about patients co-infected with HIV and hepatitis B. Dan. Entecavir, used to treat hepatitis B infection, appears to have activity against HIV as well in patients infected with both viruses. But entecavir also appears to select for the M184V mutation that confers resistance to it and to some important first-line antiretroviral drugs. Chloe Teo discussed with me the findings and implications of this study, which she presented here in Los Angeles at the 14th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. These were three individuals who were HIV and hepatitis B co-infected, and they did not require antiretroviral therapy for their HIV. They did have a required therapy for their hepatitis B, so they were put on entecavir monotherapy. And in each of those cases, we noted at least a one-log decline in HIV RNA. In the third case, actually a three-log decline in HIV RNA. In each of these cases, after the initial nadir in HIV RNA, there was an increase in the HIV RNA level. And so we wondered if there were mutations that were being selected. What was the time frame? So, uh, we've studied this only in detail in one patient thus far. And in that one patient, it was at four months where we first detected it. However, we do have a specimen at two months, which we haven't tested yet, which we're in the process of testing now. Now, I take it the entecavir therapy is quite long-term? Uh, yes, it can be long-term. What are the recommendations at this point for the treatment of HBV in the setting of HIV? The recommendations are different based on whether or not the HIV needs to be treated. If you need to treat HIV and hepatitis B both, uh, the best combination to use currently is Truvada along with a PI or NNRTI because that has two drugs, both tenofovir and lamivudine, that are active against hepatitis B. If someone only needs their hepatitis B treated and not their HIV, entecavir would no longer be my first choice because you may get this M184V mutation which knocks out using lamivudine and emtricitabine to treat HIV, which are really cornerstones to HIV therapy. They're in the first-line combinations to treat HIV therapy. So you're left with either adefavir, pegylate interferon, telbivudine, or just starting heart earlier than you need to. And I think which one you choose is based upon the patient and the physician. Based on three cases, is there enough evidence to give any recommendations at this point to treating physicians? It's three clinical cases. I think it's also important to 
note that there's laboratory evidence to support these clinical cases. If it was just clinical cases in isolation, you may wonder, well, really, is that enough evidence? But it's the clinical cases along with the in vitro laboratory data, along with the fact that you can select for the M1A4V, all those things kind of coming together demonstrate that these findings, I think, are very robust. And I think that the recommendation can be made that entecavir, before someone who is co-infected is put on entecavir monotherapy, uh, other options need to be considered and they really need to discuss it with their physicians. Does this raise questions about testing new antiviral compounds, either for the hepatitides or any viral diseases in the setting of HIV? Do they have to be tested for the potential to induce mutations in HIV? I think any antiviral drug that could potentially have activity against HIV should be tested for its activity against HIV. It doesn't necessarily need to go through the testing to try and select mutations in vitro. But I think that very sensitive assays need to be used in order to determine whether or not new compounds, if they have the potential to have anti-HIV activity, that they get tested. That was Chloe Teo of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore talking with Dan Keller at the 14th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections being held in Los Angeles. Next, more news from Dan, this time on the transmission of HIV via breastfeeding. For HIV-positive nursing mothers, putting them on highly active antiretroviral therapy may reduce transmission of the virus to their babies through breast milk. Even in poor developing countries, it is feasible, as evidenced by experience in South Africa and Mozambique. Hussein Kovadia delivered a talk on prevention of HIV transmission from breastfeeding at the 14th Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections here in Los Angeles. He told me that besides antiretroviral drugs, another method to reduce virus transmission is to change the way in which women breastfeed. A number of studies from Africa have shown that exclusive breastfeeding, as opposed to mixed breastfeeding supplemented with formula or solid foods, is associated with a lower risk of transmission of the virus. Exclusive breastfeeding also results in lower infant morbidity and mortality. Most women all over the world, whether they are in Uganda or Boston, they mixed breastfeed. And for various cultural reasons, women give, in addition to breast milk, they give water or food or biscuits or whatever. And the recommendation is you should give exclusive breastfeeding for six months. Nature has devised the relationship between mother and child such that for six months you don't need anything else except breast milk. And that's what they should have. So there have been a number of studies that shows that if you give exclusive breastfeeding, the transmission is lower. So that's the second point. The third point is to try and immunize the child. And there are a number of studies using HIV vaccines, a bit like what you hear in the adults. They're trying them in babies to see if they work and might reduce breastfeeding. And there's a type of passive immunization where you give not a vaccine but antibodies uh, to the baby to see if that might work. Lastly, you can change policies. You can change policies by improving um, prevention of HIV in women who are not infected. If women are not infected, you don't have infected babies. It's so basic. Some of my colleagues have calculated levels 
at which you should recommend formula feeding as in the US or breastfeeding and that is based on how well children survive and the indicator is known as the infant mortality rate that's the number of babies who die per thousand live births per year if it's more than 25 that means the mortality is higher socioeconomic conditions are worse then you should use breastfeeding if it's less like here then you justified in using formula feeding so I think we've got about four or five interventions some of them are easily implemented straight away if a woman does not do exclusive breastfeeding but more mixed feeding is it a case of limiting the beneficial effect of the breastfeeding or is there a negative effect of feeding other foods it's uh, both all women should know that if you give breastfeeding exclusively for the benefits and there are numerous benefits going to adulthood and prevention of cardiovascular are better with exclusive that is why WHO recommends that so that's the first thing. The second thing is as far as HIV is concerned in our study which has been a very stringent study over seven years if you mix anything especially solids the risk of HIV transmission is about what ten times higher what I'm saying is there's damage looks like to the mucosa by these uh, solids and other foods and so it, it has that effect too. Is breastfeeding a form of passive immunization? It's a good point. I never thought of it. The breast milk is absolutely a cornucopia of immune factors. I mean, it's got everything in the book. It's got antibodies, cells, reactive cells. It's got these nonspecific factors like, you know, carbohydrates, which act immediately. The bug comes in. You don't even need an active response. It just hits you. And those things are very powerful. So makes you wonder why kids get infected in the first place. But as it turns out, without antiretrovirals, about 25 to 35% of babies were infected, which means 75% to 65% were not infected. It's an area of pathogenesis which hasn't been fully explored. So I'm afraid we don't know exactly why. I think it has something to do in the final pathway of the amount of virus which is there in the breast milk and it looks like the immune system somehow failed uh, to control that. Husen Kuvadia of the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa, speaking there with Dan Keller at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Los Angeles. And that's all for now from this edition of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Audio News Review. Be sure to tune in again next time. From Dan Keller and from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.